All right, well, welcome everybody. Everybody who's watching from home, we are so glad that you are able to join in and to enjoy that wonderful worship. And our God is a saving God. I love that last song that we sang. That was, that was truly beautiful. Praise God. Um, well, we continue to meet here uh, in this context, and it's, uh, it's working out. It's not the greatest, obviously, but we're doing the best we can with what we have, and I praise God that we have the means uh, to still be able to uh, get the Word of God out to you and to be able to lead and, and song and praise, so praise God for that. Um, let me share a couple of announcements with you before we get into today's message. Nothing new, uh, for the most part, from last week. But I'd like to reiterate some of those things still. And so I mentioned that we're in the process of building a new website. We're super excited about that. It's going to be beautiful, and uh, it'll be quite the blessing. So I'll keep you posted on that, let you know when that is uh, officially launched. But in the meantime, our current website is still functional. And we still have that Stay Connected page that we would like you to go and check out if you haven't already. And so you go to calvarynapa.org and you can find that there. As soon as you log on, you'll see it right there. And uh, we're still trying to get all the contact info that we can for people that we don't currently have so that if we need to get in touch with you or send out emails, things of that sort, we can do that. And so we've had... A handful of people go on and um, put their contact info in. We're grateful for that. So if you haven't done that, please do so, so we can have that um, as up-to-date as possible. Uh, I mentioned last week that we're working towards creating some new small groups that we would be doing via Zoom. And so some folks have uh, sent in their information and said that they would like to be a part of that. And so you would go to calvarynapa.org to that Stay Connected page in order to um, basically fill out a little questionnaire, a very short, brief one, so that we can get you plugged in. So this week, for those of you who have um, put your information on there and said you would like to be a part of that, we'll go ahead and get those groups set up, and we'll be in contact with you. You'll be hearing from us, and we'll get you plugged in, and we will get those groups going. Uh, the women's Bible study already started, and from what I heard, it, it, it was great. And so they are meeting on Monday night, and Wednesday night. So Debbie Walden is leading the Monday night group, and my wife Jessica Rainey is leading the Wednesday night group. And so again, you can go on calvarynapa.org to the Stay Connected page, scroll down, you'll find everything you need there. You can get the women's studies, download them, uh, and be prepared for the actual study. If you uh, want to um, get in touch with Debbie, you can reach her via email at debbiewalden at hotmail.com. And if you would like to get in touch with uh, Jessica, you can email her at jessica at calvarynapa.org. So that's how you would get in touch with them. And uh, also our regeneration recovery meeting has uh, been happening. Usually we have a Thursday night gathering here, uh, but obviously we're not doing that now, but we are doing it online through Zoom as well. So Pastor Aaron Mosley could get you plugged into that. So again, just go to our Stay Connected page and get all the details there, all the information you need. If you need to get in touch with us, you can still call at the church and leave a voicemail. If you leave a voicemail, it will be transcribed and then sent to us via email. So whether we're here or not, we will be able to get your message. It's just important that you do leave a voicemail so that we can have that. 
If you uh, would like to email the church, you can email us at office at calvarynapa.org and you can get to, uh, in touch with us that way. If there's anything that we can do to serve you or to help you uh, in, in need, that's how you can get in touch with us. And then lastly, as I mentioned last week, people have continued to, to give to the Lord, to give to the church, and we're so blessed by the generosity of our people. Truly, this is a generous church, a generous body, and people have been asking uh, if they can give and how so, and I mentioned this last week, and I'll just say it again. Uh, you can go online to our website, and you can give there, or you can mail in a check to the church, and again, you go to Stay Connected at calvarynapa.org. All of that information is there. So, all right, that does it for the announcements. Praise the Lord. Now let's get into the Word of God. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 14. Turn with me to John chapter 14. I'll pray for us, get a little context for our study, and then we will dive in. Oh, one last thing. I'm sorry, this is very important. I almost forgot. A update about Pastor Bill. Um, many of you know that he was in Peru uh, teaching at the Bible College there. It was only supposed to be about a three-week stay, and it turned into about a six-week stay uh, because of the coronavirus and everything. Uh, there was a, a quarantine or a, a shelter in place there, and he had to stay at the at the campus, and now he is on his way back to the States. And so first he had a 17-hour bus trip uh, from where he was down to Lima and, and Peru, and then he would be flying from there to the States. It's just a very long, very difficult, and at times even dangerous trip. So um, last I heard, he was about over with the bus trip, and then he would be uh, from there trying to, to get a flight back to the States. So I would also like to lift him up as I, as I pray for our message today. So with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. There's no sweeter name, no greater name than the name of Jesus. At that name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And Lord, even here and now, we do just that. We confess from our hearts that we love you that You are indeed King and Lord. You are Savior and that we need You. We put our trust in You for salvation and we desire to meet with You day by day. We desire to walk with You. We desire to know You, know You in a greater way, to love You more and to, to serve You well and to obey You faithfully. So I thank You for Your Word that You have delivered to us, that You have preserved for us. And I thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit, that our eyes could be open and that we could understand such wonderful things from your word. And so that's my prayer today for our study, God, that you would do just that, that you would open our eyes and that you would speak to us, Lord God, by your word. We praise you, Jesus. We thank you. And we lift up Pastor Bill to you. We lift him up and we ask, God, that you would please keep him safe, that his trip home would be as smooth as it can be, uh, that he would have strength and health, and uh, that he would have peace and joy, that he would make it back safely in a timely fashion. We love him, we miss him, and we're glad to have him back. And so we ask your blessing upon him and his trip, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen.
So uh, also one thing, the men's ministry, we will be rolling with that here pretty soon. It's going to be a, a weekly men's study. So guys, for those of you who are hoping to be a part of our Men of the Word study, Matt Scott will be getting in touch with you and he'll be getting that set up. And uh, again, you can contact the church and let us know or you can contact him directly. If you don't have his info, call the church. We'll get that to you and we'll get you going there. So, all right. Well, we are in the book of John, and we are in what I called the upper room discourse. This is the upper room discourse because they are in the upper room. This is where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. This is where they share in the Lord's Supper together the night before he is to be crucified. And as I said, the gospel of John, it's a very unique gospel, very significant because it's almost entirely all new information as opposed to the other three gospels. And so there's a lot that we find in there that you don't find in the other Gospels, which is pretty cool. And this particular Gospel really emphasizes the deity of Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, that in fact He is God in the flesh. And we'll be talking about that. That really comes out in our our text today. And this book was written, specifically John tells us, so that those who hear of these things would believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing they would have life in His name. So it's an evangelistic book. These things are written not so that you would just know things about Jesus, but so that you would believe in Him, believe on Him, put your trust in Him for salvation and live for Him as such. In the first 12 chapters of this book, Jesus is in His public ministry. He's doing miracles. He's healing. He's teaching. And then uh, at chapter 12, there's kind of that final rejection that happens, and Jesus now turns His attention strictly and solely to His disciples. As I said, He's getting ready to go to the cross the following morning and so this is a very special and intimate time that he is now sharing with his disciples in this upper room where they are celebrating the Lord's uh, celebrating the Passover rather excuse me and so last week in chapter 13 we dealt with Jesus washing the disciples feet Jesus washed the disciples feet and then Jesus told Judas that he was going to betray him and then we know that Satan entered Judas and Judas left and the wheels were now officially in motion. We know that the uh, disciples had already been told in the upper room that they were all going to be made to stumble that night because of Jesus. Essentially they were going to all leave him and, and abandon him. And Peter was told that he was going to deny having even known Jesus uh, before the morning came because Peter said, look, I would never forsake you, Jesus. I'll go to death even if that's what it takes. I'll die for you. And Jesus said, no, you won't. You're going to deny me before this night is out. And so that's where the chapter left off. And so obviously it's kind of a, a disturbing scene for the disciples. And on, on top of all of that, Jesus had said to them that he's going away and where he's going, they can't come. I think that may have been one of the most troubling things that was said to them in that, in that room. And so chapter 13 ends on that note, and the disciples were perplexed, greatly perplexed. Surely they thought, how can this be? How can this be? We left everything for you, Jesus. We followed you day and night for three years, and now what? You're leaving us, and we can't follow you? We can't go where you're going? So chapter 14 transitions... And Jesus is now going to give them great encouragement. Great encouragement. And, you know, that's, that's, that is something that we often see when it comes to the Scriptures and the truths of God. 
sometimes for us to really appreciate the glory and the beauty of truth, sometimes we have to understand the, the depth of darkness in certain situations. For instance, our sin. In order for us to really appreciate the gospel of Jesus Christ and what God has done for us in His Son, we have to understand the, the darkness of our own sin and our own sin nature. It's like a diamond against a black backdrop. It shines so much more brightly. It's that much more brilliant. And so that's kind of what's happening here. Chapter 13, in some ways, was a very dark chapter, and it left off with the disciples being deeply perplexed. But Jesus is going to turn that around, and He's going to give them wonderful words of comfort and hope. And so I've titled this message, Hope for the Troubled Heart. Hope for the Troubled Heart. Now, in the whole chapter, we're going to see six things that Jesus sets forth as hope or encouragement for the disciples. We're only going to cover the first 14 verses of this chapter today, and we're going to look at three of those promises, three of those things that Jesus sets forth as hope for a troubled heart. The first is the promise of heaven. The second is the sufficiency of Jesus. And the third is the power of prayer. So we're going to see all of that in this text before us today. So John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus says to them, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And I go and prepare a place for you. I will come and receive you to Myself that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus starts right away by telling them, I'm going, but I'm coming back for you. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. So He starts with the what? Let not your heart be troubled. That is, don't let your heart be agitated, disturbed, distressed, deep anxiety. That's what they were feeling. That's what they were experiencing. We see this word pop up over and over. And Jesus says, not to let your heart be troubled. How? How are they to obey this command? And He says, through belief. You believe in God? Believe in Me. And this word believe is so significant in the Gospels, especially in John. It's, it's not just some sort of intellectual understanding. It's faith. It's trust. And I would say it's surrender. We have believed in Jesus. We have embraced Him. We have surrendered and submitted ourselves to Him, believing that our eternal security is in His hands and that we are safe because of it. We have absolutely entrusted ourselves. We don't just believe that He is a historical character that lived and died and rose again. Even we have put our trust in Him solely for salvation. We have bowed the knee to Him. We have surrendered ourselves to Him. That's the kind of belief that we're talking about here. So Jesus says, you believe in God, believe in Me. And now the why. The why. He says, because in My Father's house there are many mansions. Now let me just say, uh, other translations don't say mansions. They may say rooms or dwelling places. And I think that is more accurate. Um, I know why the word can be rendered mansions, but I don't think it's the best rendering of the word and other translations don't use that. But what we have here, Jesus is really laying out for us the Jewish wedding custom. 
what we see happening here is the Jewish wedding custom of the day and how Jesus is likening what He is doing for His church to that very thing. So in that time, the way that it would work is there's the betrothal contract. And this was usually for about a year. And so the, the bride and the groom, they were legally bound. They weren't married yet, but they were legally under this contract. That's exactly where Joseph and Mary were at when... Uh, Mary was found to be with child. And so that was considered adultery and she could have been stoned for that. So that is the betrothal contract. Now, while that's happening, during that period of a year, the bride is making herself ready. She's preparing herself. She's waiting for the, the coming of her groom. She doesn't know when that's going to be. Only the father of the groom knows and he's going to send his son at the appointed time to go and receive his bride. In the meantime, the son is preparing a home for him and his wife. And generally what they would do is just build on to the, the existing house of the father of the groom. He wouldn't, the groom wouldn't go out generally and build a whole new house. They would just add on and the family would keep getting bigger and bigger in that way. And at the appointed time, the father would tell the, the son, go and receive your bride to yourself. And then he would go and the festivities would begin and there would be a celebration all the way to getting the bride and then bringing her back and, and the rest of the wedding ceremony would take place and uh, at times the celebrations could go on for weeks. And so that was the Jewish wedding custom. And so we see, we see so clearly the picture here that we, the, the church of Jesus Christ, His bride, we are here, we are waiting on the return of our Lord to come and to take us where He is and He is building a place for us. He is building a, a home for us in heaven in the Father's house and He's going to come and He's going to return for us. Wearsby, Warren Wearsby says this, Jesus is building a church on earth, that's you and me, and a home for that church in heaven. And so that's what Jesus is doing right now. And then He says this, I go to prepare a place for you. I want to draw your attention to that. That's very significant. Jesus is preparing a place for me and for you specifically, particularly you. He has you in mind. Jesus died for you on the cross. It wasn't some generic death. Jesus died for your sins specifically to secure a salvation for you specifically. And He's preparing a place in His Father's house for you specifically. And you need to know that. You need to recognize that. There's great comfort in that. It wasn't just some generic payment that was made. Jesus died for you. Jesus loves you. It was your sin on His shoulders on that cross that were washed away because Jesus loves you. And because Jesus desires to prepare a place for you. And one day we will all be with Him in glory, worshiping Him in splendor and majesty because of what He did. And so you need to know that. You need to know that. Jesus loves you. Wherever you are, whatever you're going through, whatever your situation may be, He knows you. He knows you very well. He knows your thoughts. He knows every hair on your head. He knows everything about your life, your hurts, your needs. He died specifically for you, and He's preparing a place for you. Praise God for that. Praise God. And He says, I'm preparing a place for you that where I am there you may be also. Oh, to be with Jesus. To be with Jesus. That is the hope of heaven. That is the hope of heaven, is to be with Jesus. 
Heaven is more of a person than it is a place. Sure, it's going to be wonderful and we read of these descriptions of what heaven is going to be like and we think it's going to be so amazing to see. But what is going to be the most amazing thing is to see Jesus and to be with Him. And that is the heart cry of the Christian. That is the heart cry of the Christian. We just want to be with Him, even here and now, living our lives day by day for His glory, for His pleasure, to be with the Lord, to love Him, to serve Him, to pursue Him, to grow in our knowledge of Him, to live in a way that is pleasing to Him and brings honor to Him. There's nothing more important than that, brothers and sisters. There, there is nothing more important than Jesus, knowing Him, living for Him. And we get so distracted. We get so easily distracted and carried away with the, the cares of life and, and lesser things. And I want to encourage you, to set your focus upon Jesus, turn your eyes upon Him afresh, cry out to Him anew, and align your heart back where it belongs. It belongs to Him. Give your heart to Jesus. If you haven't already, you can do that right now where you sit. You can put your trust in Him, and you can surrender your life to Jesus. You can bow the knee to Him to be with Jesus. That's what it is all about. There's nothing sweeter than that. There's no greater treasure than that. There's no greater joy. There's no greater peace than to be with Jesus. And that's, part of, that's the thing about the Christian life. Sometimes people, they give their life to Jesus and then they think that's kind of it. Now they're just going about their life and they'll see Him when they get to heaven. But we can live with Jesus here and now. We can commune with Jesus, spend time with Him here and now. But you know what? we look forward to, we rejoice in the day when we are going to be with Him and see Him face to face. And that is the hope of the Christian. That is what Jesus is encouraging them with. He says, I know you're troubled. I know that you're struggling. I know that you're confused. I know that you're fearful. But let not your heart be troubled because I'm going to prepare a place for you and I am going to make sure that you get there. I'm going to come back for you. Jesus is going to make sure that we are where He is. I take great joy in that great comfort great delight john chapter 6 verse 39 says this is the will of the father who sent me that of all that he has given me i should lose nothing but should raise it up at the last day and this is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life and i will raise him up at the last day we have that confidence we have that hope in Jesus. John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So we have hope in heaven. We have hope in Jesus and we have confidence that He is going to get us there. We can't count on ourselves. We can't count on ourselves to get there. We can count on Jesus. We must count on Jesus. If we had to count on ourselves to get there, I would say let your hearts be troubled. Let your hearts be troubled. You should be troubled. But we have the promise of Jesus that He is going to get us there, that He is saved us and He will preserve us 
And He will get us to the finish line. He will get us to heaven. And no one, none of His sheep will be snatched out of His hand. Praise God. Praise God for that. You know, that's... For many, for many of our brothers and sisters around the world, that's all that they have. Life here is so hard. It is so painful. Just making it day by day is almost unbearable. And the only hope that they have is the hope of heaven. And such a sweet communion with the Lord, knowing that that is where their reward is at. That is where their hope and their future lies. And I feel like in some ways we lose out on the blessing of that reality because we have it pretty good down here. Obviously, we see how good we have it when things get shaken up the way that they are right now. But it's easy for us to maybe not realize the glory and the beauty of the fact that we get to go to heaven. We've been saved. We are no longer under God's judgment. We're not going to hell. We've been forgiven. That is gone. That is no longer something hovering over us. That is no longer a reality for us. We have the hope of heaven, eternal joy and bliss and glory with our Lord and Savior, Jesus. I think we lose track of that sometimes because we have it pretty good here. But that's my prayer so often. God, help me to be heavenly minded. Let that be the hope. Let that be the thing that drives me. Let that be the thing that I'm looking for, that I'm living for ultimately. A heavenly city. Not built with hands, but built by God. We're pilgrims here. This is not our home. We're on mission here in this place. We're living for the gospel. That's our objective. And we're willing to sacrifice whatever we need to sacrifice to that end. Because ultimately, our home is not here, it's in heaven, and that's what we're living for. And that brings us to verse 4, the way. How do we get to that place? Verse 4, Jesus says, And where I go you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Thomas, one of the disciples, he argues, Jesus, we don't know where you're going. We don't know where you're going. How in the world are we going to know how to get there? We don't even know where you're going. thing is, Jesus just told him where he was going. He said, I'm going to my Father's house. They knew the way, they just didn't realize it. Because Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. And He says that. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is the sixth of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. This would be one example of what I was talking about. You don't find this in the other Gospels. Seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus will make this statement, I am. And that harkens back to Exodus. When Moses said to God as he was going into Egypt to speak on God's behalf to Pharaoh, he said, who do I say sent me? And God said, tell him I am sent you. I am the I am. And so when Jesus says, I am, it's very clear that he's aligning himself with God in that way. He's basically saying that he is the I am. And then he'll attach the statement to it. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. Here he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In the next chapter, he's going to say, I am the vine. And so this is a, a statement of deity. Jesus is claiming to be God Himself in the flesh. And so He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Jesus is the way to God. Jesus is the very truth of God. And Jesus is the life 
of God for the believer. Let me say it another way. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. And without the life, there is no living. Now, I, I didn't make that up. I don't even know where I got that from. I just remember hearing that years ago, and I thought, man, that is good. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Let me tell you what's so cool about that. Heaven is not found through, through directions. There's not, there's not some sort of geographical location that can be given to us and we have to find our way there. Heaven is not found through rules and regulations. Heaven is not found through rituals. Heaven is not found through morality even, trying to be a good person, hoping that in the end your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. None of that will get you to heaven. Heaven is found in a person. It comes through Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Son of God who came to die for the sins of the world, who came to take our sins upon Himself so that God would judge our sins there on the cross. Our sins would be washed away. We put our trust in Jesus for salvation. His righteousness is given to us. We receive eternal life and we are adopted into the family of God. We are sons and daughters of God forevermore. That is the good news of the Gospel. And it comes only through Jesus. Only through Jesus. Because He says, No one comes to the Father except through Me. That's a hard saying for a lot of people. People do not like the exclusivity of the Gospel so often. It's an offensive message. But, you know, the point, point blank is what the Bible says. It's what Jesus says. And if we are to, to take it that He is God and the case is, is overwhelmingly made in the Scriptures, then He has the right to say. And that's what He says. I don't get to tell Jesus what to do. I don't get to tell God how salvation ought to be. He tells me. Praise God that He would reveal that to me and to you and that He would give us a way. Praise God that He would do that because He didn't have to. God didn't have to save us. He chose to save us because of His infinite mercy and grace and love and goodness and kindness. But Jesus is the only way. Peter says it in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It doesn't get clearer than that. Bottom line, Jesus is the door. Jesus is the door. You must enter through Him. You must enter through Jesus by His righteousness, by His goodness. Jesus' righteousness, the perfect life that He lived and the death that He died, that is accredited to us. Jesus' righteousness on our account. Martin Luther referred to that as an alien righteousness. I love that. It's, it's a righteousness that's outside of ourselves. We live in a world that tells you that you have to go inside to find truth. You have to go inside to find happiness, to find help, hope, whatever the case may be. Nothing can be farther from the truth. We have to go outside. There's nothing inside but death, darkness, and sin apart from Christ. But we go outside of ourselves to Him and His righteousness is given to us and we are made righteous because of Him. We are accounted righteous because of Him. We are justified we're justified. That is to say as though we had never sinned in the first place. Declared innocent before God. 
Because at the end of the day, no one can stand before God based on their own good works. No one can do that. I cannot stand before God and say, God, I was a good person. I cannot stand in His presence and say, overall, I think I did more good than I did bad. I cannot do any of that. My works do not work. Bottom line, point blank. My sins must be paid for at the cross of Jesus Christ. There's no other way. And that's why Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. That's Matthew 26, 39. If there's any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me. Well, the cup did not pass. Jesus had to drink that cup. What do you think was in that cup when Jesus said that in that prayer? I'll tell you what was in that cup. It was the wrath of God Almighty that was meant for the nations. And Jesus drank that cup. You know, I think that clearly Jesus was terrified of the suffering and the torture and the mocking and the abandonment and the betrayal and everything that would soon follow. Who would not be? Jesus was fully human. He was God in the flesh, but at the same time He had a human nature. He was fully man. And those are things to be terrified of, to be sure. But I think that there was something far worse than that that Jesus was dreading. And that was the judgment of God that was going to be poured out on Him at the cross when He drank that cup of wrath for you and me. I think that's what drove Him to the ground. That's what caused Him such anxiety that He began to sweat blood. It was knowing that this God and Father whom He had dwelt with, in Trinitarian love and unity for all of eternity past, for the first time, was going to turn and pour out judgment on Him, on His own Son, the perfect, holy, beautiful, spotless Lamb, Son of God, was going to take sin upon Himself on that cross. And it was going to be judged there. That was the cup that Jesus drank. And if there was any other way, if there was any other way, if being a good person could save you, if any other religion could save you, Jesus wouldn't have had to drink that cup. He said, not my will, your will be done. And it was the Father's will that Jesus drink that cup. And He did. So there's no other way. There's no other way. Praise God that He gave us a way. We didn't deserve even that. That is infinite grace and mercy extended to us. All right, well, that leads us to the next, the next point. The first was our, our hope of heaven. The next is the sufficiency of Jesus. The sufficiency of Jesus. Jesus is enough. Jesus is more than enough. So verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, Show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. They still didn't understand who Jesus was. After three years of walking with Him and all that they had seen and heard, and I have to say that that is understandable. Um, we, we have the Scriptures, we have hindsight, we, we can see pretty clearly what's going on there, but they were right in the, in the thick of it, and they still didn't get it. They did not know they were in the presence of God Himself, God in the flesh. They would soon know. But Philip said, show us the Father. Just show us the Father, and, that, and that'll suffice. That'll be enough, Jesus. Just do that. 
In a sense, it's like saying, Jesus, you're not enough. There's something greater than you that we still need to see. And so Jesus responds, verse 9, He said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Jesus responds as though it were the Father speaking through him. It's kind of, I've always thought that was kind of eerie and cool. I've always loved that verse. He says, show us the Father and that's enough. And then Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you haven't known me? And uh, this is a stunning claim to deity here. Again, Jesus is making it very clear that he is God. Now, we're getting into um, Trinitarian theology. We're talking about the Trinity. We believe that there is one God who has existed eternally in three persons. We don't believe that there are three distinct gods. The Bible is very clear. There is only one God. We are monotheistic. We believe in one God. But we also see God in three different persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there's all kinds of twisted ways of, of understanding this. And this has been such an issue for the church throughout the centuries all kinds of false teachings and heresies that have arisen because of this. And we'll talk more about that um, in, the, in the latter part of the chapter when Jesus begins to talk more about the Holy Spirit. I don't want to get too much into that today except to say that that's what we believe. There is one God who has existed eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They are distinct, but they are not separate. God the Father did not die on the cross. Jesus did. Okay, so we do believe that there is a distinction but not a separation between the, th uh, the three in that sense. That is, we believe in the Trinity. But Jesus here is making a very stunning claim to deity here. He is claiming to be, be one with the Father. And his, his enemies knew who he was claiming to be. They wanted to stone Jesus at times for these kinds of claims. It's amazing that in our day and age there are people who in the name of Christianity reject that Jesus is God or that he ever even claimed to be. But Jesus' enemies knew very clear who Jesus was claiming to be. They knew clearly they wanted to kill him for it. And so Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, Hebrews 1.3. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 speaks of Jesus as the express image of his person, the express image of the person of God. The New American Standard actually renders it the exact representation of His nature. Jesus is the exact representation of His nature. The ESV, the English Standard Version, says that Jesus is the exact imprint of His nature. So we know that the Father is spirit. He's invisible. He doesn't have a likeness. That's why uh, the commandment was always there that they would make no carved images or, or engraved images after God's likeness. There's not a, a likeness to capture. But Jesus is the representation. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. If you want to see the Father, you can look at Jesus. Jesus doesn't look like what the Father looked like physically, but He represented His nature, character, and will perfectly. And this idea of Him being the imprint. I mean, you think about say like a quarter dollar. You press a quarter into clay, you pull it off, and you see the exact imprint of that quarter. And in some ways, I suppose you can make a case that that's kind of what's being said here, but I think it's so much more than that because the reality is that there are multitudes of quarters out there, and many different quarters can leave that same exact imprint. 
but you see, you can't see it on the camera, obviously, but this thumbprint, there's not another one like it. And you print that, you push that into the clay, that is an exact imprint of my thumbprint and nobody else's. I think in the same way, Jesus is the exact representation. He's not a replica. He's the exact representation, uh, imprint of God's nature, of God's nature and character and person. He and the Father are one. Jesus alone is qualified to make such a claim. John chapter 1, verse 1, we're told that Jesus is the Word of God. He's the perfect communication of the Father to us. John chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus says, or it said, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Jesus has declared the Father to us. It's an interesting word here, declared. It's the word from which we get exegesis. The, the style of teaching that we, that we appreciate and embrace here is called exegetical teaching. We take a text, we break it down, all of the intricacies, all of the grammatical nuances, all of the historical, geographical content, all of that, we break that down and we explain it in detail. That's what Jesus has done with the Father to us. He has exegeted the Father to us. He has explained, revealed the Father to us. If you want to know what the Father is like, if you want to know what the Father is like, look at Jesus. Look to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. As you see Jesus serving and loving others, caring for them, teaching them, providing for them, healing them, having mercy and compassion for them, even exercising justice and wrath at times. That is the Father. That is the heart of the Father, the character and the nature of the Father. You listen to what Jesus says about the Father because He's constantly talking about God. You want to know the Father? Look at Jesus. Look to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. So regarding the sufficiency of Jesus, that's what we're, we're talking about here. One, Jesus is sufficient if you want to know the Father, if you want to see the Father, He's enough. It's what He said to Philip. Have I been with you so long and still you haven't known Me? If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is more than enough. But I would like to go a little beyond that and talk about the sufficiency of Jesus in general because that's a, a very important truth for the Christian. The sufficiency of Jesus. That is to say that Jesus is enough for everything. He's more than enough for everything in our lives. We don't have to go looking for other things, for lesser things. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is more than enough. 1 John 5.12 says, He who has the Son has life. If you have Jesus, you have life. You have eternal life. You don't need to go anywhere else to find it. You don't need to look to yourself. You don't need to look to other religions. You don't need to look to other movements of any sort. You have life in His name. Jesus is enough. And then within so many Christian movements, it's Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus other rituals. Jesus plus, you see, in our day and age, you have to see Jesus plus signs and wonders and, and Jesus plus health and wealth and faith, prosperity, all of those kinds of things. It's just Jesus. Jesus is enough for life. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. 
He who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is sufficient to satisfy the soul. There is life in Jesus and life abundantly. But Jesus is enough to satisfy our hunger and our thirst. There is great joy. There is great peace. There is great satisfaction and fulfillment in Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. That pretty much covers it. All things. The knowledge of Jesus has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. It's through the knowledge of Him. Jesus is sufficient for eternal life, Jesus is sufficient for joy and and satisfaction for the soul. Jesus is sufficient for godly living. Whatever your need may be today, brother or sister, you can find it in Jesus. You don't have to go looking in all kinds of other places. So oftentimes we'll take Jesus and attach something to it. Even in counseling, it's become a, a big thing in our day and age that we give psychology and all kinds of other worldly ideas and help and then we attach Jesus to it in some Bible verses but Jesus is enough Jesus is more than enough because Jesus and the Father are one verse 10 do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me the words that I speak to you I do not speak of my own authority but the Father who dwells in me does the works believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. So Jesus says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? He's essentially saying, do you not believe that I am who I say I am? Jesus and the Father are one. I've already kind of talked about this, the same nature, the same essence. Jesus and the Father are one. In the early church in the first few centuries, that was one of the main things that came under attack with false doctrine and false teaching was the person and the nature of Jesus. And one of the first major creeds that came out, the Nicene Creed, addressed this very thing. There was a false teaching that arose by a guy named Arius, and it was Arianism. And they said that Jesus was like the Father, but he was not of the same essence. And so there was one word, homoousion is the Greek word, and that is to say that Jesus is the same essence. And that's what this all boiled down to. There was another word almost perfectly identical, homoousios, and that is to say he was like the Father. So the whole debate was, is he of the same essence of God? Is he one with the Father or is he, is he like the Father? could say that he is a God or the Son of God, but he's not God of very God. And that's what it says in the Nicene Creed. And there are are, uh, religious groups even to this day that still hold that same view. Um, Just to name a couple, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, they do not believe that Jesus is God of very God. They do not believe that he is the, the very essence and nature of God. They don't believe that He is homoousion. They believe that He is like God. He is less than God. He's created by God. And they may say that He's the Son of God, and they may say we need to go to Him for grace, for salvation, but they are talking about a very different Jesus. And it's important that we recognize that. I'm not trying to um, offend anybody. I'm not trying to uh, talk trash about other other movements or, or 
um, religious groups. I'm just trying to say it as clearly as I can. It's a different Jesus. And a different Jesus will not save. It's this Jesus of the Scriptures who said He and the Father are one. And He had the authority to say that. And He says that. I do not speak on My own authority, but the Father who dwells in Me does the works. So He has divine authority he is authenticated and validated by the father himself that what he is saying is true three times from heaven god speaks two of those times he says this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased he says that of the the works the works testify that i have authority i do not speak of my own authority but my works testify to that what were those works Well, Jesus, when He was walking here on earth, He healed diseases of so many kinds. Leprosy, so many different issues that people had. He could heal those diseases. He healed physical infirmities. He gave sight to the blind. He caused the lame to be able to walk, the deaf to be able to hear. Jesus had power over nature. He was able to calm the raging sea. He was able to walk on water. Jesus had power over demonic forces. He could cast out demons and devils. They were afraid of Him. They trembled at Him. Jesus had authority over physical elements. He could multiply bread and turn water into wine. Jesus has authority to forgive sin. You'll recall that someone was brought to Him to be healed, and He said, Your sins are forgiven. Arise and walk. And He said that I said this to show you that the Son of Man has authority on earth, power on earth to forgive sin. And He had power, authority to raise the dead. Jesus rose. He could raise people from the dead. And we see that in Himself when He rose from the grave. Jesus laid His life down on the cross and He took His life back up again when He rose again from the grave three days later. And so He could speak with great authority when He said, I and the Father are one. I am in the Father and the Father is in Me. Jesus demonstrated with power that He was exactly who He said He was. And I'll just say, we continue to see that to this very day when we see a life saved and changed. That is the power and the authority of Jesus. And when we see His repeated faithfulness to us over and over as He provides for us, as He cares for us, as He teaches us, as He leads us, His faithfulness over and over again, we see Jesus' authority. And all this to say because Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is more than enough. We have the hope of heaven. Jesus has promised that He's going to prepare a place for us. He's going to come back and He's going to receive us to Himself and take us where He is and we're going to be with Him. We have the sufficiency of Jesus. Jesus is more than enough. If you want to see the Father, you look at Jesus and you'll see the Father, but He's sufficient for even more than that. For every for every care, for every need, for every hurt. Jesus is sufficient. And then lastly, the power of prayer. The power of prayer. Verses 12-14. through First, we see this greater works. A promise of greater works. Verse 12. Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in Me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these He will do because I go to My Father. So here Jesus says, He who believes in Me. There it is again. The person who puts their complete and total trust in Jesus. The person who surrenders their life to the Lord. That kind of faith. 
He said, the works that I do, He will do also. Because I go to my Father. Jesus is going to go. Jesus is going to be leaving this earth and He's going to ascend into heaven. He's going to be seated at the right hand of the Father and He is going to be our great high priest who is pleading for us, who is interceding on our behalf to the Heavenly Father. Even now from heaven, we are told that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for His people, for the saints. But then Jesus also said, when I go, I will pray to the Father and He will send the Holy Spirit. He will send a helper, a comforter. And so because Jesus goes to the Father, because He's at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf, and He sends the Holy Spirit to indwell and regenerate the believer, He says that we're going to do works like He did, greater works even. Before I get into this idea of greater works, let me just say one thing. I want to keep this real simple. We are to be doing good works if we are believers. I often talk about how good works won't save us, and that is so true. You will never be saved because of good works or good deeds. But the Christian absolutely must be doing good works. The Scriptures could not be more clear about that. In fact, the Bible says that if you aren't doing good works, if you aren't serving the Lord faithfully, if you aren't blessing other people, you may not even be saved. Because good works... That is a very demonstration of the fact that we have faith in God. So Jesus said, when I go to the Father, you're going to do works. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that there are works, good works, that have been prepared for us beforehand that we should walk in. So Christian, brother, sister, listening to me right now, are you serving the Lord? Are you doing good works? Are you blessing his name and blessing his people. Obviously, we're in a difficult time right now. We're isolated uh, from one another. Uh, but are you praying for people? Are you reaching out and encouraging people? When we're able to come together again, are you going to be blessing and serving and loving people? Are you going to be doing good works for the Father? We're to do good works. But then Jesus said, Greater works than these will he do. And there's been much talk about what this means, greater works. First, I'll say that the disciples here that Jesus was speaking to absolutely did powerful and miraculous things. They went on to do all kinds of awesome works, very similar to the kinds of miraculous things that Jesus did. But they didn't necessarily do greater works. The same kinds of things that Jesus did miraculously, His apostles did, but I wouldn't say that they were greater than what Jesus did. I think a lot of people would say that this idea of greater works... There are going to be works happening in a widespread way. I think I read one commentary that said Jesus never really went outside of a 179-mile uh, area. I could be wrong about that. Don't quote me on that. But the point I'm making is, is that Jesus was absolutely confined to a certain locality and destination. But when He goes to the Father and the Holy Spirit comes and dwells believers, the gospel was going to go everywhere. It was going to go all over the place. And there was going to be widespread works of God and conversions and regeneration happening all over the place. Peter preached the gospel and 3,000 people came to faith in Christ on the day of Pentecost. Some people say this is talking about works of regeneration. When we get to share the gospel with people and people are saved, there's no greater miracle than that. You know, Jesus did a lot of awesome miracles here on this earth, but one thing for sure, all of those people that were recipients of miracles, they died. They all died in the end. And so something more important, something even greater than that is spiritual life. 
people being born of God, being born and being made new and alive forever spiritually in the presence of God is probably the greatest miracle that can happen. And God uses us in that. God has people that He intends to save and He uses us as instruments to get the Gospel out and to save people. We get to be a part of something that's amazing, something that is glorious. And then also I would say these could be greater works considering God's chosen instruments, broken people. I heard a story about a guy, he was a, he was a, you know, a world-famous surgeon, uh, but he, he got caught in a situation somewhere where they were isolated and far away from, from other people and there was an emergency situation and he had to actually do surgery on somebody and he had to use an a Army-Navy knife or a, a Swiss Army knife, excuse me. And so you think about that, and you're like, okay, that's pretty amazing. You know, it's one thing to, to be able to do a surgery in a hospital where you have everything that you need, but it's that much more impressive when you're in a situation like that and you're having to use uh, lesser things to get the job done. And in some ways, I would say, you look at Jesus, you say He is the Son of God, and He's doing amazing works, and that is amazing, to be sure. But man, it's amazing when He can take broken people like me and you and use us and do awesome works in serving and blessing and encouraging people and even bringing people into the newness of life through the gospel message preached. So Jesus promised that there would be greater works. But then this, the promise of answered prayer. The promise of answered prayer. This is amazing. And this is, this is an encouragement for the believer Verse 13, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. What an amazing promise from the Lord. Let me tell you something. Only the Christian has this privilege. Have you ever thought about that? We alone, according to the Scriptures, have a right relationship with God through His Son, and we have been invited in to God's presence boldly to the throne room of grace, and we can make our cares and our requests, our petitions known to Him because God cares. And He delights to listen and to hear our prayers and to respond according to His perfect will. No one else has that. No one else has that but us. Not because we deserve it, not because we're special or better than anyone else, Certainly not that, but because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus secured so great a salvation for us. Jesus goes to the Father on our behalf. And because of what Jesus has done for us, we now have a relationship with the Father. We are His children, and we have an open line of communication. And we're told that we can pray. And whatever we ask in His name, He will do. That's pretty amazing. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do for you. We've got to qualify this. First off, Jesus is talking to disciples. His disciples. He's already told them over and over, if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross. You have to die to yourself. You are now living for Jesus. You're living for His will. You're living for His purpose. You're living for that which delights His heart. That's who this promise is given to. It's given to disciples. It's given to people whose minds and hearts are set on Jesus and the gospel and Jesus' mission in life. That's number one. But number two, he takes it even farther and says, if you ask it in my name. So when we pray, 
you know, we, we will often attach that to the end of our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. And I think that's a good way to close a prayer. You don't have to. I think that it's, it's a reminder that we are not coming to God on our own merit, based on our, our own worth, that we are coming because of what Jesus did. The only reason that we can even come into God's presence is because of what Jesus did. And so sometimes I'll open my prayer with, Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. It's by His authority. It's because, of, it's because of what He has done for me that I can come to you. But it means that you're praying according to His will. You're praying according to His heart. You're praying according to His character. You're praying according to His reputation even. Oftentimes when we talk about someone's good name, we're talking about their reputation, right? And so we are disciples that are praying in Jesus' name. We're praying things that we know are pleasing to the God. And, and we can know that. There are so many times when we pray, we can know this is God's heart. This is God's will. The Scriptures have made it so clear. There are obviously times we don't know. We pray for wisdom. We put it out there and say, God, we don't know. We may not even know how to pray sometimes. But at the bottom line, we are to pray in Jesus' name. And then he says this, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He further qualifies it. Those are the kinds of prayers we're to be praying, prayers that would bring glory to God. You know, Jesus said that if we abide in Him, that we will bear much fruit. And God is glorified when we bear much fruit. And so we can be praying, God, I want to be fruitful for You. God, may I be connected to Jesus in the vine. May I obey Him faithfully. May I grow in my knowledge of you, may I grow in faithfulness and gratitude and um, patience and all of those different things. And when you do, guess who's glorified by that? God is. Those are the kinds of prayers that God is glorified. And I would encourage us as Christians to be praying more like that when we pray for each other. I know that we're tempted oftentimes to pray for our neighbors, uncles, son who has a neighbor, another neighbor whose dog got ran over. I, I get that, and there's a place for that. But we want to be praying specifically for spiritual things. We want to be praying for salvation for people. We want to be praying for the gospel to go out. We want to be praying for Christ's likeness in our lives and in other people's lives. We want to be praying that we would be effective for the kingdom of God, that we would bear much fruit. We want to be praying that God would be glorified and the Son. Those are the kinds of things that we want to be praying as disciples. And we're told that when we pray, Jesus will answer those prayers. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So let me close with this verse. Luke chapter 11, verse 9. It says, So I say to you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. So that, that is the promise and the hope and the encouragement to the believers that we can pray. We can go in prayer and we're told to seek, to ask, to knock. Literally in the Greek it's keep on seeking, keep on asking, keep on knocking. So are we praying? Are we seeking the Lord? Are we going to Him? Are we praying like that? Brothers and sisters, keep seeking, keep praying, keep asking, keep knocking. This is one of the wonderful blessings that has been given to us, one of the great comforts for a troubled heart. The hope of heaven, the sufficiency of Jesus, 
and the power of prayer. Three wonderful blessings that we have to comfort a troubled heart. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we love you and thank you so much for the blessings that you give us, that you pour out on us. Thank you that we have the hope of heaven. Thank you that we have Jesus as our Lord and Savior and truly He is sufficient. And thank you that we have prayer. Thank you that we can come to you in Jesus' name and we can pray those kinds of prayers and know that you delight to answer those prayers according to your will. So we, we bless you, God. And I just pray for all, for all of our people. All our people were not able to gather as the church right now and that grieves our hearts. Uh, but Lord, wherever one is uh, that can hear this prayer and even those who can't, I pray that you would give them a special peace, a special joy, a special blessing that is found only in you and in relationship with you. I pray, God, for those who are fearful and concerned about their provisions and how they are going to make it, God, that you would pour out provision upon them abundantly and that they would see and know that you have provided for them and that you would receive glory, Father, that you would be glorified as the God who provides. And so we trust you in this time, Lord. I pray for safety and health for our people and for their families. And I pray for all of this to pass us by, Lord. We look forward to the day when we can gather again as, as your saints, as the church, and worship you corporately. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.